Great. Our scripture reading for today is from 1 Peter 2, 18 through 3, 6. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the, of the, be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. This is the word. Of, this is God's word. One of the most important works of American literature is Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, it's written by the abolitionist Harriet Beecher Stowe in 1852. I quickly sold hundreds of thousands of copies, which is a lot back then, right? Uh, it sold out even in the South, where it was banned uh, because it was against slavery. Uh, famously, uh, but probably didn't happen, it's probably legend, uh, Abraham Lincoln is said upon meeting the author during the Civil War, so you're the little woman who wrote the book that made this great war. And in case you're not familiar, Uncle Tom's Cabin is the story of Tom, a slave who is presented as a saintly figure uh, in contrast to the morally bankrupt players in the slave system, the masters and sellers and owners, um, and just uh, people, uh, white people. Uh, he is himself a Christian believer and remains committed to his belief in Jesus even in the face of suffering. That's a strong theme throughout the book where he's a, a very religious man. That's the most notable thing about um, Uncle Tom. He is noble, steadfast, kind, generous. And so at night, he would remove cotton from his pack and put it in the packs of others so they wouldn't be punished uh, for uh, poor work. Uh, he refuses to follow his master's orders and beat other slaves, instead taking on punishment himself. And at the end of the novel, he is himself beaten to death because he won't divulge the whereabouts of two escaped slaves. And in the process of dying, he forgives the two slaves who are tasked with beating him, making Uncle Tom an explicit Christ figure. Like, that's obvious. He is in the place of Christ. Um, and he implores his master, uh, his wicked, terrible master, to repent. Um, the book uh, closes, Tom looked up to his master and answered, Master, if, I, if you was sick, 
or in trouble or dying, or I could save you, I'd give you my heart's blood. And if taking every drop of blood in this poor old body would save your precious soul, I'd give them freely as the Lord gave his for me. Oh, Master, don't bring this great sin on your soul. It will hurt you more than it will hurt me. Do the worst you can. My troubles will be over soon, but if you don't repent, yours won't never end. It's a powerful read. Um, and at the time it was published, the power was its portrayal of slaves and their families as full people, like with complex inner lives, with strong relational connections, with moral convictions, even amidst deep, deep suffering. Um, and its portrayal of Uncle Tom, a black man, a slave, not just as a model for slaves, but a model for all people, was a very striking thing for an author to do in 1852. Similar to how Jesus made the Samaritan the hero, right, and the Good Samaritan, um, for Harriet Beecher Stowe to present a slave in the place of Jesus Christ was a bombshell. But the book and Uncle Tom eventually falls out of favor the further we get from uh, the Civil War, um, and so much so that Uncle Tom is generally a, an insult now. It's uh, a pejorative term. To be an Uncle Tom is to be spineless and weak, impotent and cowardly, subservient to the point of being a traitor. And so one night Malcolm X called Martin Luther King uh, an Uncle Tom, and the next night people threw eggs at MLK. So what happened um, to get from that story uh, to um, it, it being a, a an epithet, um, uh, an, an angry word. Um, there's a lot that goes on, and there's a lot of corruption that happens to the story. Um, but this really illustrates a challenge when it comes to reading old texts, right? Frankly, it's hard to know how to relate to books written in a different time to a different audience under different circumstances. Um, and as I said, Uncle Tom's Cabin comes with a lot of extra baggage that Harriet Beecher Stowe is not responsible for. Uh, it was quickly twisted and abused by racism. It was adopted, adapted for minstrel shows and movies that, were, that are just disgusting. Um, it's stripped of its depth and meaning. And so it's hard to know how to read a text um, that is far away and also been so corrupted by uh, wicked people. And so on the one hand, Uncle Tom's Cabin is a book that accomplished so much good uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe is truly an American saint. She's a Christian saint. Um, and yet, reading Uncle Tom's Cabin in 2022 is uncomfortable, uh, to say the least. It was impressive for its time, and it was deeply Christian. But I'd almost say you couldn't write it, you shouldn't write it the same way today. It would not be Christian if it was written today, right? If, if Uncle Tom followed the same path, you would, you would say, man, I don't think that's what Christ falls him to do. Uh, times have changed. And that's something of a challenge we run into with today's passage. How do we interpret this really old letter written under different circumstances and to different people? Except the challenge is more significant because this really old letter is nothing less than the eternal word of God. And so we can have a different kind of posture towards Uncle Tom's Gavin, um, and sort of, then we can to scripture. First Peter isn't just a letter written by a well-meaning Christian um, uh, saint. This is a letter written by the Apostle Peter, inspired by God himself. So that even though it remains, like Uncle Tom's Cabin, a culturally loaded, historically situated document. Uh, First Peter is that. 
it's still cross-culturally and cross-historically authoritative over us. How do we posture ourselves? As citizens, our statement of faith reads that the Bible is utterly authoritative and without error in the original writings, complete in its revelation of his will for salvation, sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do, and final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. The Bible is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it teaches, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, and trusted as God's pledge in all that it promises. And so that means that it's not possible for us to just dismiss any part of Scripture as outdated or irrelevant. So what do we do with 1 Peter 2 and 3? All right, listen to it again. Listen to the uncomfortable parts. I'll just pull out those for you. 1 Peter 2.18, servants, really slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For what credit is it, verse 20, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, or beaten for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Verse uh, 7, which we didn't read this morning, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. This is not a comfortable read in San Francisco, right? Not if we read it honestly. Um, Peter is clearly writing to a very different world from ours. And yet it's the word of God, and so what do we do with it? And so we're going to try to walk through it, but just in principle, like first we pray and ask for help. Um, the doctrine of Scripture not only includes the doctrine of inspiration, which is that Peter was inspired and, and wrote 100% um, true the very word of God. That's one half of the doctrine of Scripture. The other half is the doctrine of illumination, right? We, Peter was inspired, but we need illumination. We need the Spirit's power to read it well ourselves. And so we ask the Lord, we pray uh, for help. And then, following prayer in faith, we use the tools God has given us to try and understand 1 Peter 2 and 3. We use our minds and our hearts, um, we use each other, we use church tradition, we consider the history and the culture insofar as we can uh, get to it, while still maintaining that the Bible is 100% true and authoritative over us. Um, our reading of the Bible should continue to be sharp. And so that's one of the things that whenever I come to a text like this, I, I still want it um, to purify me. I don't want to come away and be like, oh, I got this. Um, and interpret it in such a way that it's, that it's soft. It needs to challenge us, encourage us, equip and sharpen us. I don't ever want to cut the teeth out of the Bible as a preacher. Um, so we should ask ourselves, what is the sharp reading of 1 Peter 3? What's the reading that drives me to my need for Jesus in the gospel? Um, and then last, um, wherever we arrive um, this morning, whatever sort of uh, point that we come, we submit our reflections to God's grace, and we just thank the Lord that we're not saved by our accurate reading of Scripture. Uh, we are saved by uh, 
his perfect work in the gospel. And so today, um, there's a little bit more background, so yeah, I just ask for a little more patience. Um, but my prayer is that through our time, uh, God speaks to all of us. Let's uh, pray and ask God for help. Dear Father, we do pray for illumination. Uh, we know that we need the Holy Spirit to come and open our eyes and ears. This text is going to um, hit us all in different ways, uh, given our own histories, our own stories, our own experiences. Um, Father, it comes with a lot of baggage. Uh, there has been uh, a long record of corruption, um, people misapplying texts and abusing texts uh, for power, for abuse, uh, for perpetuating injustice. And so we ask that you would help us to not put that on the Bible, um, to not put that on you, but to come at it wisely. Uh, we want to be faithful readers of Scripture. We want to be pure. Uh, we want to be holy. And so help us know, how do we be holy in line with 1 Peter 2 and 3? How do we be winsome um, out among the world as we shape our lives in light of your word? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we've said a bunch of times over the past couple months, the book of 1 Peter is written to Christians who are being persecuted because of their faith. And so once they identified primarily as Romans or Greeks or Anatolians or Jews or whatever, but now they identify as Christians. Um, and that has created a level of alienation from their cities, homes, and families. And so that context means that today's text doesn't offer a positive Christian vision of marriage. Um, that's very important to recognize. There is a good bit to glean, um, frankly, uh, like from 1 Peter 3, but Maggie and I shouldn't base our marriage on 1 Peter 3 because we're both Christians. And this is written into a situation where one spouse is a Christian and the other is not a Christian and is kind of hostile towards faith. Um, if you're looking for a comprehensive vision, a Christian view of marriage, you should go to a place like Ephesians 5 where Peter really grounds marriage in gospel truths. Uh, he talks about the relationship between Christian husbands and wives as um, the husband loving their wives like Christ loved the church and wives following their husbands as the church follows Christ. I preached a sermon on Ephesians 5 a few years ago, and so you're welcome to go back and listen to it if you want to wonder, man, what does marriage look like for me and my spouse who are both Christians? Um, these marriages in 1 Peter, though, by definition, can't fulfill that because only one person is a Christian. Only one partner believes in Jesus. Today's text is about Christian slaves with hostile non-Christian masters and Christian wives with hostile non-Christian husbands. The slaves and wives are being persecuted because they decided to follow Jesus, courageously break, breaking rank with the key authority figures in their life. Um, that's Peter's audience, and that audience shapes his advice. Before we get to that advice, though, remember, Peter has already encouraged them by reminding these 
uh, dishonored slaves and spouses, the honor they already have from God. That's behind all of his advice. Um, you know, he is essentially saying through First Peter, maybe your families and households are actively dishonoring you for following Jesus, but that's okay because you have a surplus of honor from God uh, through the gospel, and that honor is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Because of Christ, because of grace, you are children of God, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. I think of what that would have meant to these marginalized peoples, um, marginalized categories, these women and men, that they are children of God, that they are a royal priesthood, that the honor, this honor from God is worth infinitely more than any honor you could receive by playing along with other power structures. Um, as an aside, early Roman critics of Christianity often slandered the church because it was mostly slaves and women and poor people. Um, and the fact that Peter speaks directly to them here kind of affirms that, that that's probably true. It was mostly slaves, women, and marginalized people. Why do we think that was true? Because unlike pagan cultures, which permanently put them as low, Christianity teaches that everyone, Male and female, poor and rich, Greek and Jew, is created in the image of God and loved by God. And so that is going to draw people to Jesus, um, right? I've heard, I've heard it said that poor people aren't inherently more spiritual, but they are inherently more needy. Um, and that neediness opens them up to Jesus. Uh, so it makes sense for the church to be made up mostly of materially, culturally, and spiritually poor people. That's the foundation, um, the church's identity and honor for God. That's the first part of Peter's message. And then he's shifted to more practical advice, which is what we get in our text today. Peter wants to give them specific counsel to speak directly into their experience. But again, it's really important for us to remember that their experience is not ours. Now, it's not a one-to-one -one connection. This means that 1 Peter's counsel to us is probably not one-to-one -one either. That is super easy, intuitive for us when we read in 2.20, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. When Peter talks, when we read this morning about a slave being beaten for insubordination, we know immediately like, this doesn't apply fully to me, right? This is not immediately helpful. There are places in the world where that would apply, but not here. Um, we're going to need to update his advice. It's still the word of God. It's near, not irrelevant. Um, but we need some wisdom. And that's just because slavery is no longer an acceptable part of our society, right? So whenever we read instruction to slaves in the New Testament, we just automatically know, man, I need to filter this. I need to think through how does it apply to my employment at a coffee shop or at Apple. If any of you came to me and told me that your boss hit you for being a Christian or for any reason, I would tell you as your pastor to file a police report and talk to HR and don't go back until something happens, right? Like that would be the Christian advice that I would give to you. Um, that would be the Christian thing for you to do in America in 2022. Um, and it would be the church's responsibility to support you as you moved through that ordeal. Um, in that situation, 1 Peter still applies to you. 
with its beautiful, powerful call to imitate Christ by enduring suffering while doing good, but that doesn't mean that you need to accept abuse from your employer, right? For most of us, like, we don't need to spell that out. Um, interpreting 1 Peter 2.18 is really intuitive to us. We don't need a lot of help. Um, when we get to chapter 3, though, and marriage, that distinction gets fuzzy because husbands and wives are ubiquitous, right, across all societies. We don't intuitively know that the context needs updating, but it does. Um, without context, I might read the word wife in Scripture and think, this is about Maggie. Uh, she's a wife, and so it says wife, so it's, it's about the same thing. Um, and that is how certain Christians have read 1 Peter 3, assuming it's just like broadly applicable to all uh, marriages across all times. But you should know that the Greco-Roman wives Peter is addressing in this letter are no more equivalent to Maggie than a slave is equivalent to you at Facebook. That's about this distinction. And so something needs to shift in our understanding. We need to sort of understand what was the position of the wives that he was writing to and recognize, man, you're not in that position. There is no wife in this room. There is no woman in this room that is in that position. And so we need to update our ethics. Um, they're vastly different, with different power dynamics, different rights and responsibilities, levels of authority and agency. As with Peter's word to slaves, the principles remain the same, but the practical implications different. And so that means that the Christian thing to do in a hostile marriage is going to be very different now than it was then. My advice, our advice as a church, the way we would support a wife of a woman who's married to a non-Christian, especially to a hostile non-Christian, is going to be very different. Um, and so what was marriage like in the first century? Um, sorry, again, this is very teachery. Um, but... In summary, it's just classical patriarchy. That's what it was. On a philosophical level, women in Greco-Roman society were considered inherently inferior to men. By nature, they were morally, physically, emotionally weaker. Uh, unlike Genesis, which teaches the equality of men and women, right? both are created in the image of God, um, Greco-Roman mythology teaches that Zeus created women as punishment for men, that there was this like pre-land of just men having a great time, and then Pandora was created as punishment for stealing fire. Um, and in that, marriage and childbearing was the only way to contain the problem that was women. And so that's where the home was. That you were actually, if you had them outside the home, it would not go well. And so their highest dignity, and the only way to control that was marriage and childbearing. And that meant that in marriage, husbands held all authority. Uh, the wives to which Peter wrote were often uneducated, uh, couldn't inherit or manage property. They had no parental rights, and so if the husband wanted to abort the child or to expose the child to just uh, leave an infant... Uh, it was his right to do that. Um, she could be divorced by their husbands for the cheapest of reasons, but she could not divorce her husband for the worst of reasons. Uh, wives were expected to worship the gods of their husbands, which that's actually likely where the tension came, is because these wives, what were they doing? They were worshiping God. They were worshiping Jesus, and that was seen as insubordinate and threatening. 
And so that's the context into which Peter writes, which hopefully is very, very different from my marriage to Becky, right? Like, it's a very different situation. Culturally, wives here have so, and praise the Lord, um, because of the influence of Genesis 1 over Western society and society broadly, um, women have so many more rights. It has been a long, long fight and much, much delay, um, but... Um, there's just, they're just not, it's a, a modern wife is not a Greco-Roman wife. Um, and so we need to think that through when we read his words. Um, this is the context um, that he's writing. And it's into that cultural context. And so just imagine yourself in that relationship, um, in that situation, and listen to these words that Peter writes speaking directly to Christian wives married to non-Christian men. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Yeah, imagine a, a church, a room, where this letter is being read, and that is what's read over her. It's a remarkably dignifying statement. Just the fact that Peter addresses wives directly would have stood out to first century readers. You can find ethical texts that are really similar to this. They always only address men and masters. They never address the women because the women have no power. You're just going to force them to do what they need. And so just the fact that he addresses slaves directly, addresses wives directly, is dignifying. In the Bible, the wife is always in control of her own behavior, right? She has the power to act. She is given instruction. Her kindness is in her hands, and it's given to God as much as to her husband. It is hard for us in 2022 to understand how countercultural this is. Uh, Peter is writing to a woman who's much younger than her husband. He was married as a like, young adolescent to a man far her senior, um, who is likely not loved by her husband, because that is a Christian value. It is not a Roman value to love your spouse. That was not there. That's, you had prostitutes and friends over here for that. Maybe he's nice, but he doesn't have to be. What's more, she has no education. She is legally and culturally powerless with no rights, no recourse, no options. He has all the power. She has none. She has no voice. Literally, verse 1, if she's going to win her husband to Jesus, she has to do it without a word. What do you do when you have no voice? I think that is the primary application point for 1 Peter 2 and 3, or one of them. What do you do when you have no voice? When you are a slave with an unjust master? 
when you're a wife with a hostile husband? What do you do? That's why this text doesn't and shouldn't apply to Christian marriages. Because no wife with a Christian husband should be voiceless. No wife with a Christian husband should feel voiceless. No Christian wife should feel silenced by her husband. Christian husbands are called to love and listen to their wives. First Peter is written to those with non-Christian husbands who have been silenced. What do you do if you have no voice? And Peter's advice remains consistent across all hostile relationships. Whatever you do, and it's hard advice, it's still a sharp text. Whatever you do, always do good. Do good in the face of evil. Do good in the face of shame. Do good even when others do you wrong. So that even if some do not obey the word, even if they won't listen to your voice, maybe they will listen to your conduct. And if they don't listen, rest assured, God is listening. God hears you. God sees you. He will reward you, and he will judge justly anyone who abuses you. And so the slave is called to entrust himself to God who judges justly. The honor is for you who believe. And so Peter challenges slaves and wives in the first century to not simply accept their station in life, to passively wait for heaven, to just go along. That's not Peter's word to the Christian. Um, it's also not to revolt. Um, probably just as a pragmatic thing, is, is that just won't, it won't go well. It won't go anywhere. Uh, so what does Peter tell them to do? Peter wants them to actively subvert their station, but to do it through goodness. That's how they're going to sabotage the power structure, is by being good in the face of evil. So remember 1 Peter 2.16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. The slave and the Greco-Roman wife they don't, they don't look free. They probably didn't feel free. But Peter addresses them as free people. He's talking to them, and in his mind, Peter is calling them free. It's the unjust master who's the slave. It's the husband who is powerless. They're the ones who are trapped by sin and death. The wife and the slave have been freed by God and now that they are free, they must be sure and live like free people as servants of God, wherever they are. They're to do good for the Lord's sake with the promise that they will be honored. And listen again to how Peter dignifies their suffering. To the slave, he writes in verse 20, But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And so just like Harriet Beecher Stowe, Peter compares the slave to Jesus. He puts the slave in the highest possible position. You can't, you can't be compared to anyone better than that. There's no greater honor. That's the scandal of the Good Samaritan, of Uncle Tom's Cabin, of the Gospel itself, to put the marginalized person as the hero, to honor the shame. In a similar vein to the wife, Peter compares her to Sarah. 
the great matriarch of the faith, right? The mother of, of the church. God sees you and thinks you're beautiful. 1 Peter 3, 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And so external beauty doesn't matter, which is here today and gone tomorrow. Internal beauty is what matters. It's imperishable, and as a child of God, you have it. God sees it, and he thinks you're beautiful. Think about what these words must have meant to people who have been told their whole lives that they were less than full human beings. Imagine the early church gathered in that room to hear this, and Peter addressing slaves and women directly, addressing the poorest members in the community, speaking to them first. Slaves, be subject to your masters. Wives, be subject to your husbands. I see you. The Holy Spirit sees you. You may be voiceless out there. You may be insignificant out there. But in the church, we hear you and honor you. In your suffering, you are proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. First Peter 2, 9. And so their worst experiences were being used by God to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. That's the audience, context, and message of 1 Peter 2 and 3. And so, jumping forward to today, who does 1 Peter 2 and 3 apply to, and how might it apply? Um, there are a ton of implications, but for us in here, they are almost all going to be indirect, um, because none of us should find ourselves in these situations. If you find yourself in a situation like this, as a man or a woman, employee or spouse, like, please tell the church. Like, let us, like, help you in that. Um, and help support you, like, getting out of that situation. That is, that is what we need to be as a church. And thankfully, our society is such where there are lots of pathways out of that. It's 1 Peter 2 and 3 is still relevant, it's still authoritative, but it needs to be adjusted because our culture grants significantly more rights to workers and wives. Parts of the world where that's not true, and so this is going to speak directly to them, but not in San Francisco. And unfortunately, there are historical readings of this text which have tolerated and even encouraged abuse throughout the church. And maybe that's a part of your story, and I am so sorry. That is corruption of God's good word. The apostle Peter would be livid if he knew that his words were twisted in such a way. Jesus is livid, and he will judge justly those who abuse people and loathe people without power. If you are abused in your workplace, if you are abused and neglected in your marriage, you have every right to do good while leaving for something else. And um, you don't have to stay, and you likely shouldn't. But how does it apply to us who are not in that situation? 
uh, for Peter's advice to the slave that applies to people who are suffering for doing good in the name of Christ. And it encourages us to keep doing good. It is a gracious thing, a gift. You've been given the privilege to follow in Christ's footsteps. Uh, First Peter calls us to follow the example of Jesus, to be Jesus in our workplaces, even when we're made fun of or dismissed or slandered. Um, we are still uh, privileged to be able to uh, do good in the face of that. For Peter's advice to the Greco-Roman wife, um, this is going to apply to wives and really to any person, because we have a more egalitarian uh, culture, right? whose witness to Christ has been silenced in their families, uh, who feel voiceless in their families and maybe are stuck. What do you do in that situation? When your husband is an unbeliever, when your wife is an unbeliever, when your family is hostile to you, don't try to win them over in a pagan way to adorn yourself with like outer, um, that's, that would be the, the first century version, right? Um, braid of braiding of hair and, and things like that. Uh, we shouldn't try to adorn ourselves on the outside with beauty and success and whatever other cultural sources of power there is um, to try to sort of win them over by their own means. We're to adorn ourselves with godliness, the fruit of the Spirit, to let our families see Christ in us so that when you can't speak, when you're not allowed to speak, you are still speaking through your and maybe, just maybe, they'll hear God's Spirit in you and become believers. It is so kind and hopeful to me that First Peter includes that. That's not his like ultimate like foundation for his advice. Um, it's not the ground of my obedience. I we're to obey because we love God and God loves us. But as someone with unbelieving family members, like this gives me such great hope that there is a persuasive power in your behavior. There is a persuasive power in your conduct. And 1 Peter 3.1 challenges us to keep praying often for the conversion of our families and, and to live in hope of that. Our conduct speaks loudly. It can win people without a word. And so don't stop believing in the gospel for your husband, for your wife, for your family. Don't stop believing in the power of grace and forgiveness to turn people from death to life. And for all of us, don't fear anything that's frightening. That's such a lovely, like, wonderful verse in 1 Peter 3, 6. You are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. By wording it like this, like Peter isn't denying that obedience can be frightening. It, it's sometimes frightening. The situations that we find ourselves might be frightening, risky. Um, he's just acknowledging that God is bigger than that. And so we don't have to be afraid of frightening things because God will protect us. Remember Sarah, remember Hannah, Deborah, Esther, Mary, all the other holy women um, of faith in the Bible. Harriet Beecher Stowe who risked herself in many ways by writing such a scandalous book, who did good and didn't fear anything that was frightening. How does the fear of others impact our obedience? What frightens us? Who frightens us? Remember God and do good anyway. All of us can take that away. That's not just a message for wives, right? All of us can come away and be challenged by 1 Peter 3.6. 
The character of Uncle Tom is based in part off a real man, uh, Josiah Hinson. Um, his autobiography uh, made its way to Harriet Beecher Stowe, and it was one of the main stories and main resources that she used in writing her book. Josiah was born into slavery. Uh, he became a Christian at the age of 18, and then a popular preacher while still a slave, and so he, um, he was a really gifted preacher. And uh, in his autobiography, which Stowe read, he told the story of when he almost lost his faith uh, later in life. Um, I think it, in his 30s, I think. Um, and he was in a situation that through his preaching and with the help, help of Methodist preachers, um, he had raised enough money to purchase his own freedom. But then his owner stole that money and sold him, like made plans to sell him anyway. And he sends him with his son uh, down the Mississippi River to, to sell him in New Orleans. And on his way down there, he is increasingly overcome with rage, naturally. And he decides that he's going to kill the master's son. And it was the middle of the night, axe in hand, he's standing over his master's son sleeping um, on the boat. And Josiah hear, hears a voice, and the voice says, What? Commit murder, and you a Christian? And he wrote, Now all at once the truth burst upon me that it was a crime. I was going to kill a young man who had done nothing to injure me, but obey commands which he could not resist. I was about to lose the fruit of all my efforts at self-improvement, the character I had acquired, and the peace of mind which had never deserted me. All this came upon me instantly, and with a distinctness which made me almost think I heard it whispered in my ear, and I believe I even turned my head to listen. I shrunk back, laid down the axe, crept up on deck again, and thanked God, as I had done every day since that I had not committed murder. Shortly afterward, the son contracts malaria on the boat, and Henson nurses him back to health and returns him to his family. And um, amazingly, he was able to scheme and escape um, and was one of the early conductors of the Underground Railroad. Um, Josiah Henson realized in that moment that the honor of God was worth infinitely more than the honor. He wasn't a coward for failing to kill his master's son. He was courageous, not fearing anything that was frightening. He was a saint, a disciple of Christ, following in his Lord and Savior's footsteps. 1 Peter 2.20, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. 23. When Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Little did Josiah Henson know then that 
his moods, channeled through the character of Uncle Tom, would contribute to the healing of thousands upon thousands of people. People's lives, people's families, people's consciences would be healed because of his faithfulness. What could our silent obedience accomplish? What could today's unjust suffering endure faithfully cleanse? How will we follow in Christ's steps? How will we bleed for others, remembering how Jesus bled for us? Let's pray.